0: So I had a plan this evening. I was going to come and have a really nice, peaceful, concentrated, quiet sitting before I gave the talk. And then things happened. Some of it had to do with my body, seems to be on the plate. Some of it had to do with the computer and the printer and the printer that didn't want to listen to the computer. And So then not only do we have one teacher giving a talk tonight, we have two teachers giving talks tonight. So we have two teachers running around trying to figure out how they're going to get their talks and their poetry and everything printed out. the irony of it, this might sound a little familiar, kind of like your retreat, you thought you were coming for a peaceful retreat. (laughs) And the irony of it all is that what I'm talking about tonight are the obstacles and hindrances for practice. (laughs) So I thought, I don't know what it is, I maybe invited it to happen, you know, just by choosing the topic. So... Sometimes, when we come to a retreat, and so many of you have come either for the first time, or I've also been astounded at how many of you have come back after a period of not practicing for a while. It's really wonderful and so exciting that that's, that's happening. So, you come to a retreat, and, and you know, you probably had a notion either because you'd been here before or you remembered what retreat practice used to be like and, of course, the intervening years tends to erase some of the difficult stuff. And then you get here and it's tough. And at some point, I know for me, I was sort of like, where are my car keys? And unfortunately, at some of my early retreats, sometimes the teachers had my car keys. Because in those days at retreats, we would go off like to Yucca Valley because we didn't have spirit rock, and the teachers would need cars to use and, you know, nice yogis like me would say, you can take my car. So they'd have my car and my car keys. So I had no way to escape. (laughs) What, What am I gonna do? You know, if I if I have to escape, I have to go crawling like to Bob and say, please, please, you know, I'm gonna quit and go home. So, of course, I never did. I did once get a note from a yogi who was suffering from some similar kinds of things who said, if someone leaps up at the end of a sitting and yells out, ring the goddamn bell, (laughs) would it be an act of compassion to ring the bell? So I thought about it for a while, and unfortunately, you know what the answer is. Nope. It's not. So, you know, we all have these moments. You know, you, we laugh because you probably wanted to write that note or thought about it yourself at some point in a sitting. And it's tough. It's a bit like going to boot camp. You know, we ought to call it the Spirit Rock Boot Camp instead of the Spirit Rock Retreat Center. And it's hard on the body. You're doing things that you're not used to doing. Fortunately, we have Marcy, so that helps. And it's certainly tough for the mind and the heart. And sometimes for people who are new, it's really confusing what is going on here. What is going on here? And there's just so many things that you know i've been actually trying to pay attention to it about this time that those of us who are here a lot don't think about it so much it's just the way it's done here right but you know if you're new how would you know and it's kind of confusing and the rest of you who have been here before and you've come back have ideas about how it was last time that it's going to be again or you have ideas about how it was last time and it's not going to be that way again mm-hmm. And so, you have some notion of where you're going to get and how concentrated you're going to get, and all of those kinds of things. And we come, you know, like I mentioned the other night, we come hoping for some peace and some rest because it's tough out there. You know, it's really tough right now. It's politically contentious, and there's the war. And, all the environmental things and and just lots going on lots of questions about what's going to happen in the financial world and will we be able to survive economically and and you thought that maybe it was going to be quiet here and i'm sure it has a number of people have commented on how nice it is to be away from npr and cnn and the computer and all of that but the mind and the heart are pretty much every bit as chaotic as everything else. So, you know, Jack Cornfield used to like to say, you know, you thought you were coming to a really wonderful retreat center, and instead you came to the garbage dump. So some of you today have heard it a lot as I've talked to people about the stuff that's coming up, the old memories, and the pain, and the sadness, and that, the things that you've kind of you know, kept back there that you haven't wanted to look at, and now they're up. And, and you know, Vipassana, I've said this in both of my groups today, Vipassana is both a wisdom and a purification practice. It's really important to remember that. So the wisdom piece is where you have insight. And the purification means your stuff is going to show up, even the stuff you don't want to see. That's part of the deal. It's part of the cleansing process. And we talked about that in terms of what goes on in the liver and the kidneys and. So you could think of meditation as being sort of like the liver and kidneys of the, of the mind and heart, you know. It's taking, sort of cleansing it, and, and the things that aren't so useful have to go. So it is a bit a garbage dump here, you know, despite the fact that it's utterly beautiful and, and it's raining out there tonight. You know, I hope all of you got to go out for at least a minute or two. I saw somebody reaching his hand out, like, is it really raining? And then he'd bring it back in again, and then he'd reach out again, you know, just to check, like, was it still raining? (laughs) So I hope when we're done it's still raining so you get to go walk in it for a few minutes. So the Buddha, when he came to teach, was interested in the ending of suffering for all beings. He really wanted beings to be happy and to find ways to be happy in this very life, in this very life. And all of his teachings, everything you hear here, is meant to be a structure for the investigation of the mind and the heart. So they're really meant, the teachings are meant to help you investigate your own mind and heart. And so that you can find out how you, in your own way, can come to that ending of suffering, can find a place of freedom. And so it's actually important to get to a place where you get interested in how come is it I suffer? How come is it, and what does my suffering look like, and where is it I get caught in pain and and difficulty, and often over and over again? So it seems like whether you're in retreat or out of retreat, there's stuff to deal with. And when we're on retreat, you might have noticed that you have some stories. Is this true? That go through periodically, maybe with gray. I see a couple of people rolling their eyes, you know. Yeah. So we begin to see how we create these stories, novels, novels like that, the whole thing, you know. I remember one year I was sitting at IMS, and at IMS, which is the center in Massachusetts, you know, the front where the teachers sit has is flanked by doors on either side, which is where people come into the hall. You could imagine if instead of the doors back there, they were up here. So if you're sitting like waiting for the Dharma talk and you aren't being particularly good about having your eyes closed, whoever walks in the door, you see. And in those days um, they used to let people kind of come and go from the retreat. So almost every few nights there was someone new who walked through the door. And if you're sitting for a long time, somebody new is really interesting. You know, it's the most interesting thing that's happened for days other than lunch. Lunch is interesting. And so I can remember a couple of times someone would step through the door and it was amazing to see. It was actually very instructive how fast the mind had the whole story about who they were and what kind of a student they were, where they were going to sit in the hall and whether I was going to like them or not. I had no idea who this person was, you know. But the the mind just does that, creates these wonderful stories, or sometimes terrible stories. And we've certainly seen as we've sat here that we do, just like Mr. Duffy, Bob mentioned last night, we live sometimes not only a short distance from our body, but sometimes a long distance from our body. And so we're out of our body and we're in our stories and often we live in those stories. You know, we just see our whole life through the lens of those stories, the things from the past, from the future, work and relationship, you know, whole world systems actually that we live in. And we often react out of the story instead of out of a response based in the present moment. So with all that suffering we come and and we have some yearning to suffer less, you know, we'd like it to be a little different. And so you've taken on a training. Now, maybe if there's one thing I would really love it if you carried out of here this week, it's the notion that this is a training. You know, it's something that you take on to train the mind and heart. And so It's not about getting somewhere or a grade. It's much more like going to the gym and developing some strength and some health in your mind instead of in your body. At Vajrapani, which is a retreat center down near Boulder Creek that I teach at every year, they for a while had t-shirts that they were selling and, and on the back it said, Mind Training and I liked them a lot. You know, it's like everybody, we should issue them at the beginning of a retreat and you could all have t-shirts that say mind training. So here you come on retreat looking for some peace. And is it easy? You know, is it a piece of cake or a walk in the park? might be a walk in the park. It's kind of like a park, but it's not. It's tough. And so some of the toughness is really predictable. That's one of the pieces for tonight. It's really predictable that it's on, you know, there are lists of the difficulties that begin to show up when you try to be mindful. And um, this particular list is called the hindrances. And that's where I'm going to start. It's not all of the talk tonight, but it's where I'm going to start. And some of you, a few of you, have heard talks about the hindrances, maybe even a few of you, a lot of talks about the hindrances. But what's really interesting, and I've noticed this in my own practice, is that no matter how many times I've heard this talk, and even when I'm sitting there, you know, I'm, I'm sitting like Marcy is, or Bob, except in this case, maybe Bob's giving the talk on the hindrances, and I always hear something that's helpful, because the hindrances are there for all of us, and they continue to come up. So this is maybe good news that you know the difficulties that you're experiencing while you're here are not personal to you. This does not mean that you, whoever you are, are a bad meditator. It just means that you've come to that place in practice where these are what come up. So part of the art of practice is to get to know them very very well so that you can recognize them and move away from them and really be alert for those of you who are experienced you know it's like well what's the hindrance what's the hindrance of the retreat you know this last retreat it was one thing maybe this retreat it's a different one and so you know sort of like the hindrance of the week you know or the hindrance of the year if you will so so there are 5 there's attachment and grasping desire, there's aversion, there's restlessness, there is what is called on the list sloth and torpor, and then there's doubt. So these are the five main areas of difficulty. So desire or attachment It's that place where the mind is always leaning out and wanting more and getting a little caught by that wanting. And sometimes the more that we want or the thing that we want so much has to do with the senses. Chocolate, for example, or ice cream. Or maybe it's about becoming something, you know, wanting to get somewhere wanting to get concentrated, wanting to get quiet, or maybe it's about ending something. You know, I want the noisy mind to stop. You know, so you're really wanting the end. It. it often comes around pleasant experiences. So you might, you know, you notice that even like in the dining hall something's really the art of those glazed artichokes with the lemon butter at lunch today. Yeah, see, somebody's already licking their lips. And so I only took two and then I went to eat lunch way far away and at the end of two I went, wait a minute, more! You know, <laughs> more! But I couldn't go back to it. I was caught in something else. Couldn't go back. So we do that, you know, and we want more. And we always want more. Things, or money, or being a meditator, or even waking up being a, you know the ending of suffering. It's definitely deeply associated with the body. You know, the body has a lot of desire, food, alcohol, sex, you know, all of those things. And the desire itself is difficult, but that's not really the problem. The problem is where we get attached. It's the have to have, it's the addictiveness that's really the problem. And so You know, it can be subtle on a retreat. Sometimes it's just getting really upset with yourself because you so want a quiet mind. And I've heard some of that today. You know, people who so, so want the mind to be quiet and it's just not today. Or who so, so want a body that will allow them to sit. Or I've been struggling with a body that's getting a little bit older and I can't sit cross-legged right now. I have sat cross-legged for 25 years in my practice. I sit cross-legged when I can teach. It's sort of like I sleep cross-legged, I think. Mm-hmm. And I can't do it right now. And it brings up so much sadness and attachment in me mm-hmm. and you know, gets in the way. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes, you know, at a retreat, we have, for example, the phenomenon of the Vipassana Romance. And so some of you might even be having one. I won't ask you to raise your hand. But we've all had them. I've had them. And that's the place where, of course, you see somebody who's yummy and you're looking these days. And so you find somebody who's of the right flavor. And you begin to develop this whole story around who this person is and how you're going to get married, or live together the rest of your lives, or whatever it is that you want to do with this person. And it can begin to consume a lot of energy. And you know, I've, I've done it, I've seen what happens in my own shelf, and, and I've certainly heard a lot of stories, you know, so you, you both end up walking in the same place, and all of those kinds of things. And it can be really, enormously distracting. And it keeps you from waking up. You know, you can't see clearly. The image that's given in the suttas, it's as though when the mind is really, really clear, it's like a pool of clear water. And this attachment and desire is like dropping dye into the water. And so everything you see is through the color of that desire. So this attachment, it takes us out of the present moment. You know, It's away from being here and being contented with what is and leaning out to whatever it is that we're wanting. And it's a hindrance. It blocks our mindful presence in the moment. So the opposite of desire is aversion. And so that's that place where you don't like it, whatever it is, you know, get rid of it. It often comes with unpleasant experiences, and it often comes at retreats. You know, you're sitting here and something happens you know you discover that the door squeaks or the person near you is breathing the wrong way or somebody has a cold and that's a problem and you know there's there or it's the blue jays you know they are a problem and and so the whole thing starts to become about how can i get rid of it how can i make it go away and and we just have so much aversion. And so the image for the pool is that's like the pool is boiling. There's just all this bubbling going on and, and you just can't see for all of the w- way the water is bubbling. Often, as we've been looking at with the 32 parts, we're filled with aversion for our own bodies. You, know, you realize, oh, I really don't like this body or this particular part of my body. And, and we spoke about it some in here this morning. One of, one of you mentioned it, the, the hatred that we often have for our bodies. How come we don't have the perfect California girl, whatever, or the perfect you know, guy body or whatever that is. And and we go to a lot of extremes, you know, around aversion to our bodies to fix them and to shape them up and surgeries and all those kinds of things. And of course, you can have aversion in a retreat for someone else, that person who's the heavy breather or who walks in in a noisy way or who does something in the food line ahead of you, and pretty soon you don't have the Vipassana Romance, you have the Vipassana Vendetta. And you know that if only that person left the retreat, it would be better, and you would probably be fully enlightened. And I bet Quilly could probably tell a few stories about, you know, what people would like other students at retreats to do. It's a very interesting place to work with on the retreat, this person who is such a problem. And this aversion also keeps us from being fully present and contented with the moment just as it is, even with the breathing or the coughing or the heavy walking or whatever it is. So then the other, the next two are kind of a pair, restlessness and sloth and torpor. And they both cloud the mind. Restlessness is like the wind is blowing over the surface of this pool and really agitating the surface so you can't see down in. And sloth and torpor is like the pool is filled with slime and algae and, you know, when water gets really still and gunky and, and so it's cloudy. and, and Sleepy, so so the mind can go either way, and as I said um, on the first or second day of the retreat, sometimes it's both at once, which is really difficult. So the mind can come become really, really sluggish, you know, really sleepy, and sometimes you actually do fall asleep. I'm sure some of you have had that experience, and sometimes it just gets kind of like a lot of hypnagogic kind of imagery and and pieces, they're kind of dreamlike, but they're not, and I went rushing off to one of my teachers on an early retreat saying, I think I'm having past life memories. (laughs) And so she had me tell her a little bit about them, and she said, you know, I think really you're sleepy and tired. (laughs) I was really disappointed. I so wanted them to be past life memories, but just sleepiness. So when that comes, that state comes, a couple of things to say. We talked about it at the beginning of the retreat because it happens for everyone, no matter how experienced you are, it happens at the beginning of the retreat. Later in a retreat, as the retreat goes on, it's possible that if you continue to be really, really sleepy, that there's some kind of resistance or something that you're not wanting to see. That's always worth exploring. It's also worth saying that everybody has sleepy times of the day. So you can begin to know what your cycle is in your retreat practice. And you know, for some people, um, I sat one long retreat when it was the sitting after breakfast, for some reason, was my really sleepy sitting. And I've been on other retreats when it's in the sitting after lunch. That's quite a popular one for sleepiness, actually. And for some people, it's the late night kinds of practices. and So you can begin to pay attention to your your rhythm, actually, and begin to do what you need to do to bring some alertness to your practice. Now, maybe the first thing to say is you can be kind to yourself, especially if you know it's your sleepy time of day. Sometimes you just have to kind of soldier on through it and get to the other side of it when you wake up. But you can sit with your eyes open and you can stand up and you can walk quickly before you come into the hall and you can go into the bathroom and splash water on your face and you can tug your earlobes, I'm told. That's supposed to be helping. And then, as I mentioned the other day, you can also sit on the edge of a well. You could (laughs) probably try one of these walls out here or in the forest where there are mountain lions. Um, the Buddha said tigers, but we don't have tigers. And I actually did that. A couple of years ago, I was here for the month of March sitting. And I had a nice place up in the hills where I sat most afternoons. And there were a few afternoons when I was just sitting there and thinking, I wonder if I'm being mountain lion bait. And it did bring a certain alertness to my practice. You know, oh, hmm. You know, that kind of extra wanting to be a little aware, and um, so I recommend it if you want to try it. Restlessness comes for some people, not for everyone. It can come in the body, a lot of restlessness in the body. also certainly can come in the mind. One of the ways the word for restlessness is translated is worry and flurry. So that place where the mind is just really, really agitated. And there's a couple of things you can do for that. One is that you can, sometimes when the mind is restless, you can look underneath the restlessness. I think of it as almost like peeling up my cushion and looking underneath. Because sometimes under the restlessness, there's something else. It's often, for me, aversion. It's a place where I'm worried or afraid or unhappy, and I don't quite want to go there. And so the restless mind covers it, And when I actually look and see what's there, and if I'm willing to be with it, then often the restlessness subsides. So that's something to pay attention to. And the other antidote for restlessness is, unfortunately, concentration. So it's taking that restless mind and body and saying, okay, the breath, and nothing but the breath, which is, of course, if the mind is restless, it's going to feel It doesn't feel good, actually. And it takes a certain amount of energy, but when you do it and you really work with it, you can often push through the restlessness into a place that is easier. So you can experiment with that if you want to. And then the last of these um, hindrances is the hindrance of doubt. Now there's a kind of doubt, a kind of questioning, that the Buddha actually really supports. And that's the place that says, is this true? And really wants to find out for yourself. you know. And he really suggests that you not... He, he even said, I mean, you could imagine if the Buddha were sitting up here and said, don't even believe me, you know, check it out for yourself. And we in, certainly invite you, don't believe us. You know, try it out and see if it works. And that's a useful kind of questioning, you know, is this something that you can verify for yourself? That's really, really helpful and really good to do. But there's also a place where, even when we know something is true, we've tried it, we've tested it, and then something comes up in the heart and mind that just says, ah, you know, and we really, we want to, think we're going to walk away from something that we kind of know is true and good for us. And that's the place where um, you really need teachers and friends and guides along the way, whether they're in the form of people or whether it's tapes and CDs, whatever it is that inspires you to kind of keep on going even when you're not so sure that this is the right place. We really need a dose of inspiration. So a couple of years ago, I was sitting a solo retreat and um, I'd been reading a lot of Buddhist suttas as part of my retreat practice. And they got to be really, really monastic and really, really male. And I just was not being very happy with all of this. kind of felt heavy-handed and dark, and I just wasn't sure about the Buddha and the teachings. and And I picked up, I'd actually thrown a book into my luggage when I left to go to this place where I was sitting, and thinking, "Oh, I'll read it on the airplane." It was a book by another Buddhist teacher that I know. and Um, and he just published it. And I just happened to have it, and so I picked it up. And you might remember that um, I told you the koan of the Emperor Wu the other night, that wonderful story about the Chinese emperor, and that's what I read. And so that question came, what is the point of these holy scriptures? And I thought, good question! You know, (laughs) what is the point? And when when um, Bodhi Dharma says nothing special, vast emptiness, I went yes, you know exactly. That's right, and so that just that piece of it was so inspiring. It was exactly. It was like my friend John Tarrant, whose book it was, was you know right there. He came through in the form of his book to inspire me and get me through that piece of doubt, you know, and so. You know, we all have people and friends like that and I invite you to use them when you have these hindrances. One last thing to say, sometimes the hindrances come one at a time. It's a day when you have desire or you have aversion or you have lots of sleepiness or whatever. And sometimes you get what's known as the multiple hindrance attack when they all come at once or several of them come at once. And so just know that if they're there, you can work with them. You can be mindful of them. That's certainly a very good first step. And you can work with the antidotes to alleviate them. And when you get more concentrated, as the mind gets stiller and quieter and more focused, there will be fewer hindrances until in the end, if you get really, really quiet, they go away. But that takes a while and it's not permanent. So, even if you have a day without hindrances or a sitting or a minute without hindrances, then you know they may come back. So, okay, so often when we have these hindrances, we don't meet it with mindfulness. We don't meet it with the antidote to its presence. You know what we meet it with, right? You meet it with more aversion and with judgment. Lots of judgment. So you're basically making it exponential at that point. And so the judging mind is what can create enormous difficulty on the cushion, enormous. And you might have noticed it judges your gear, your cushion, your shawl, your clothing. You didn't bring the right clothing. It judges your sitting posture. It judges your behavior in the interview group. And if you worry about the interview group before you go to the interview group, it judges you're worrying about the interview group. You know, it's like that. And then, of course, if it gets a little bored with judging you, it looks around the room and goes, "Oh my God, you know, <laughs> how could he or she do this or that?" One student on a retreat once talked about what he called the meditation soldier who was like the sergeant who was right there at his elbow, always criticizing anything he did. Do it harder, do it better, do it more, you know. Or if it's not, you know, some some voice like that, it's mom and dad and sister Ignatius and your camp counselor and all of those people who seem to be right here at the retreat with you. With their usual array of comments. Mm. And you know, I don't know how many interviews I've done over the years, group interviews, individual interviews, when people come in and they sigh and they say, I'm just not very good at this. You know? Yeah, oh, (laughs) right. Because, you know, I mean, that's that judging mind, right? And I know. I mean, the place I've watched it a lot in recent years is when I go to the gym. You know, what if somebody's watching? What if they see that you know the weights were set for 100 pounds and I've moved them down to 30? And, or. What if my form is wrong? You know, what if I'm supposed to be bending my arm this way instead of that way? Or maybe they think my clothes are kind of stupid, you know, not too much spandex on an old lady. <laughs> and so it doesn't just happen at retreat. The judging mind is something that we carry around everywhere. One great Zen writer said the burdensome practice of judging brings annoyance and weariness." Isn't that wonderful? Mm -hmm. The burdensome practice of judging brings annoyance and weariness. You know, my mother's been gone for a number of years now. I can still hear her voice. And she would complain and say nasty things about herself. And sometimes she would say things about me And I can hear my voice and sometimes my critical voice that is derived from her says worse things about me than probably anyone on the planet would say. And you probably have those voices, right? That say the nastiest things. It would be embarrassing to tell people what that voice says sometimes. We certainly judge our practice, and we judge it especially when the hindrances arise. You know, And it's really hard. The hindrances are hard enough. You know, it's bad enough when your mind is caught with aversion or desire or restlessness. And then you add the judgment layer on top of it. So one of the things that's really important to understand is when mind states arise, It's not that you've chosen them. You don't go, I think I'd like to have a version today and order it up sort of like from Land's End or something like that. You know, you don't get to do that. It's just there. And it's there because it's conditioned. It's conditioned by an enormous variety of events in your past. You know, have you noticed You can't prevent it from happening. You can't prevent that desire from arising or that aversion or that judgment. It just shows up, even if your intention is to have a kind and compassionate mind. And there you are, you're pissed off one more time. So, some years ago, well, let me back up. As people who sit with me on retreats, always find out. I have this husband who goes to Burning Man and he's been for 10 years, for those of you who are curious about those kinds of things. I have not yet been. I might not ever go, I don't know. And it's been difficult because it's not my scene, this wild party out there in the desert. And it's a lot of other things besides a wild party, but I had a lot of judgments about the party part, even though that's not his shtick. And it got over the years, so it was kind of painful because this is a man I love deeply. And I can see that his presence in going to Burning Man, Bob's sort of thinking he's going to go with him some year, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> and I've, you know, I've seen that it's been really helpful to him. So one year I went to Ajahn Amro in the spring as Russell was beginning to sort of rev up for Burning Man. And I said, you know, I have so much judgment, I don't know what to do about it, it just comes up. And Ajahn Amaro said, oh, he said, it's just a conditioned mind state. And I went, what? He said, just a conditioned mind state. I'd never thought of it that way. I thought somehow it was my fault that it was there. And you know, we've been trained to be judgmental. We have been. You know, we've been trained since we were little. You know, I watch my grandchildren as they're going through school. And they're going through school in Texas, so it's not an easy place. And, you know, a lot of emphasis on grades and gold stars and a lot of criticism. And we all had that, too, and lots of kids get that. It's not just Texas. And we've sort of gotten it ingrained in us, that this judgmental voice. And there's constant, it's a constant process that we're trained in in comparison. You know, we're always comparison comparing ourselves to someone else. We are more than or the same or less than just about everyone. In Buddhism, that act that act of comparison is actually called conceit. And it's one of the last things that goes before you are fully enlightened. So we've got this one to work with for a while you know. And in Buddhism, um, it, it really means conceit is about any kind of comparison. So it's whether you're better than, whether you're the same as, or whether that you're worse than. They're all conceit. So these are deeply, deeply conditioned. Now judgment is sometimes defensive, right? It's useful. You've, you've learned to kind of judge, you know, I learned to judge myself before my mom did. And so if I caught what I was doing, went, whoops, that's bad, and could clean up my act, she might never know. So it was a pretty useful thing to learn how to do. So it's it's deeply defensive. And in the retreat world, it's probably the thing we hear the most from students is how difficult the judging mind is and how often it's present. I'll bet that's been true for every one of you in this retreat. There has been some judgment that is there. And I was telling one group the other day, there was an amazing moment at one of my early retreats when I was just minding my own business walking back to the dormitory And all of a sudden I realized that every thought I had was either just about 99.9 was about judging me, or judging them, or figuring out a way that I could be so they wouldn't judge me. That was a lot of the energy of the mind. A huge, huge Percentage. It was an astounding insight. It's a very important insight. It's really unpleasant when it comes. It's not an insight we like having, but it's very, very important to see how strong judgment is in the mind. So, and it shows itself particularly at retreat. You know, we're not so busy, things are quieter. What else is there to see other than your own mind and heart, other than the deer and the turkeys and all of those things? But it's not all bad news. So here's a reading from Francis Fenelon, who is a monk, a Christian monk in the 17th century. He says, As the light increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings. Mind you this is he's you know this is the 17th century like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. We never could have believed that we had harbored such things and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But while our faults diminish, the, lights by, the light by which we see them waxes brighter and we are filled with horror. Bear in mind, for your comfort, that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. We only perceive our malady when the cure begins. So, you know, waking up enough to see this conditioning in the mind to see how much judgment is there, is actually an important piece of waking up. So if that's what's happening for you here this week, this is really great. Not fun, but great. So there's some things to be done. There's some ways to work with your energy that can be really helpful. That you can, when a good mind state, a skillful mind state arises, You can learn how to sustain it and encourage it as a mind state of mindfulness or kindness or compassion. And when it's unskillful, the energy and effort to dispel and to discourage it. So we work with with mindfulness as an antidote to the hindrances and to judgment, just seeing it, you know, to to know that it is there. It's not me. It's an event to be aware of. Here is judgment. You know, there's an old psychosynthesis trick that that we, we were trained not to say things like, I am angry, but here is anger. Here is aversion. Here is desire. The minute you say, here it is, you're not quite so identified with it. Here is judgment. You know, it's here. We can look at it. And so, and then we can begin to counter some of the hindrances. You can counter desire by reflecting on impermanence. You know, the chocolate or the sex or whatever isn't going to last, you know, it's going to go away. And so maybe that's something to think about when you're really consumed with desire. The antidote to aversion is loving kindness practice, the antidote to restlessness, as I mentioned, is concentration and we talked about the energizing activities for sleepiness and the inspiration for doubt. So we cultivate some of those mind states to dispel the hindrances. And, but the most important thing, I think, is, is when we begin to cultivate a certain kind of happiness in our practice. And happiness is actually really, really useful as a basis for your practice. And it's something that you can actually look for. So, for example, when you come in, when you get up tomorrow morning, maybe as you're walking over here, you could reflect you know, how wonderful it is to be on a retreat, to have a place like this where you can come or when you settle down on your cushion, even at home. You know, it's amazing to have time to sit still and to be quiet. And to just to bring that kind of gratitude and happiness for your practice in. The beauty of the place, the birds, the squirrels, the deer, the turkeys, you know, the joy of other people who are practicing with you, whatever it is. And that actually begins to counter that judging, comparing mind. Very, very helpful. And gladness or happiness is one of the abodes of the heart. It's one of the things that we call the divine abodes of the heart. Enjoying our own happiness and the happiness of others. And you know, we're not very good at that. We are so, we so rarely relax into our own happiness. You know, you might try it. In the, we've got some time left before the end of the retreat. And sometimes we're even critical of it. How can I be happy? you know? Or we're embarrassed about it. And the phrase of the practice is, may I enjoy my happiness, may it last a long time. Now I ask you, when did you last say that to yourself? <laughs> may I enjoy my happiness, may it last a long time. What a wonderful thing to say. You know, so really work with this for the rest of the retreat. Can you relax into this day of practice and a time of rest? And this time, remember, we talked at the beginning when you don't have to go anywhere and you don't have to do anything. And best of all, you don't have to be anybody. You are just here practicing. And it gets so simple. You've been here long enough now, you know that. That place where, you know, I watched a bunch of people watching the deer the other day, you know, just. Just watching the deer or or smelling, you know, go out tonight and smell from the rain, you know, with the wet earth, that'll be fabulous. And and or you can be happy for another. And sometimes even we see that happy happen here, and you can practice like when the person get in front of you gets the last piece of the the last artichoke, you know, that one. (laughs) Whoever went and got the last artichoke. And can you go, oh, you know, may you enjoy that delicious artichoke and enjoy their happiness even if you don't get it. Can you be curious? You know, can you can you really get interested in what is it? What is it about Burning Man that makes this man happy? (laughs) What is it that makes him happy? I have a favorite Burning Man story. I think I have time to tell it. So one year, early on, he went off. I was still pretty nervous about Burning Man. And, and a couple of days after he'd gone, I thought, Oh God, he's going to come home and he's going to have purple hair. I have a husband who's quite ahead of hair. I, I'm the short-haired one in the family. And... Um, and I don't think I can live, I cannot go to Trader Joe's with a man with purple hair. I just cannot do it. And I got quite obsessed with this purple hair thing. And I talked, and at the same time, I knew I was obsessed. I knew that there was this mind state that was just there, but I couldn't stop it. And I kept thinking, no, let go, it's going to be fine. You know, it's not going to be purple. And then, no, it's purple. And so finally the day came, and he often calls me when he gets, you know, a few hours from home to give me a heads up. So the phone rings, I pick it up, it's Russell, I'm happy to hear his voice, and then I think, okay, I'm going to clear this up for once and for all. So I say, what color is your hair? And there's this long pause, and then he said, magenta. which was not much of an improvement over purple. And he said, but it will wash out. (laughs) It kind of, sort of, washed out. So, you know, can I enjoy his love of his magenta hair? (laughs) Or his costumes, or, you know, all of the other things. I can continue to be suspicious and judgmental, or I can Begin to understand that that's a conditioned mind state. That's mostly my mother, I think, really. And begin to really practice enjoying his happiness, really. You know, getting excited about the things that he really loves about that community and that world. It's pretty easy to see which one supports a better marriage, right? So, resting in your happiness counters judgment and it contributes. To deeper concentration. It actually supports a concentrated mind. The aversive mind will not get concentrated. It can't. Aversion is a hindrance, it blocks it, and that, that happy, contented mind will concentrate better. So it's worth cultivating those states. So You'll find as you develop your ability to put your attention in the present moment, in your breath, in your spleen, in the bone marrow, in the itch, in the sound, whatever it is that's coming up, you'll begin to see that when you can actually do that, there's a kind of joy that begins to arise. And you can notice that. It's not a mistake you can actually notice that give it some space in your practice and give it some attention that will help to counter the hindrances so there you know there will be these difficulties there will be hindrances and there will be judgments and you can develop these various techniques mindfulness itself the various antidotes the the really cultivation of that happy and kind and friendly mind that will counter them. Mindfulness is always the first line of defense. Mindfulness is always where you begin. No matter what's happening, there's no place at which you say, I cannot be mindful of this particular thing. Whatever it is that's come up, it's not a distraction. The minute you are mindful of it. Isn't that wonderful? It's a little bit of Aikido that you can do in your practice, you know, because then you're doing the practice again. Even if what you're mindful of is your nutsy, crazy bananas mind that's racing around, it's like, oh, look at that, the crazy mind. And then you're here again, and then you're not caught in that place of hindrances and difficulty. So here's a final poem from David Budbill and it's called Bugs in a Bowl. Hanshan, that great and crazy wonder-filled Chinese poet of a thousand years ago said, we're just like bugs in a bowl, all day going around never leaving their bowl. I say, that's right. Every day, climbing back up the steep sides, sliding back, over and over again, around and around, up and back down. So sit in the bottom of the bowl, head in your hands, cry, moan, feel sorry for yourself, or look around, see your fellow bugs, Walk around, say, hey, how are you doing? Say, nice bowl. <laughs> so you might not say that aloud, <laughs> since we are keeping silence. But you know, there you are with your fellow bugs. How are you doing? And it's a great bowl. So. So let's sit and breathe for just a minute, just as you are, no need to move. May all beings everywhere rest in happiness and in the causes of happiness.
1: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.